Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Congress and Doc Podcast, episode 109. I am talking to Dr. David Kensell, who is a, I agree to right, the director of pediatric rehabilitation at Mount Sinai. He's also a professor at the at rehabilitation and performance at the Icon School School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's also a ringside, sports or rings a ringside at uh, physician at many of the combat combat sports. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. And uh but first I'd like to thank my sponsor, Head Check Health. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by Head Check Health. Head Check Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. To run organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada who rely on HeadCheck Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. Okay, so thank you very much, Dr. Kensell. And we were talking briefly before this, and I kind of cut us off so we could start recording. But um, yes, I guess first, first of all, you were, you were saying you wanted to talk about the uh, one thing we noticed about children is the buy-in. And I kind of wanted to forget, I guess, to, to root that is, just how would you define concussion to to your because not it's not repeat not kids but this by their parents more and mm-hmm. would you bring up brain injury as because concussion as you know is a brain injury and that's often I think maybe one of the reasons why people don't want to talk about concussion associated brain injury because they don't want to think of it as a brain injury but it is obviously so how would you describe if someone can do just how would you first describe them. What you're going to do and what your exact role is going to be well, well nick thank you for having me and and that's a great question because it is one of the the things that i try not to tiptoe around when i'm speaking with the parents about this yeah. because i think it's really important that the parents understand that it is a form of a brain injury yeah sometimes exactly. the parents have um this conception that they get in sports of well they got ding they took a hit and they don't quite realize that it is a form of a brain injury. And um, it's one of the first things I say is that it's a concussion and 
sometimes we think of it as someone just, you know, taking a hit and getting dinged a bit, but it's called a mild traumatic brain injury, but it's still a brain injury. And, and getting the buy-in from the parents is really important because um, when you're talking about, you know, kids, especially teenagers, it's going to be very difficult for them to adhere to any kind of regimen or protocols that I try to set without the parents buying in. That's across all aspects of pediatric care. Right, yes, exactly. So, so what, what exactly is your role at Mount Sinai as director of the uh, pediatric rehabilitation? Well, I see all sorts of musculoskeletal conditions. So I would see kids, for example, um, anything from tennis elbow oh. to um, muscular dystrophies, um, genetic conditions. Um, I see, you know, newborn babies, perhaps that may have, um, you know, just a flat head, what they call plagiocephaly, just they were laying on, the, on their head and their back of their head's flat. Um, or I can see a young adult who either has a brain injury or perhaps has a disability like cerebral palsy, um, and they're just um, older. Um, and certainly it goes across the life spectrum. Um, when I was in training, the, the oldest person that I saw in a pediatric rehab clinic was about 54 years old, post-polio. Really? Oh, so from childhood? Old. Is that because they had polio in childhood? Mm-hmm. And, and one thing that we often find is that um, it's hard for someone who has any kind of, who's, and, and I don't, uh, I would call it being different. Anybody who's different, as you go from being a kid and going through becoming an adult, what we find is that it's hard to relate to general practitioners, um, regular pediatricians, uh, regular medical doctors, especially when you go from being a kid to going to adult care. And so a lot of times the one person that they um, see constantly, the one constant um, that they have is the rehab doctor. And so a lot of times they stay with the rehab doctor because uh, that's the person who knows their difficulties, their troubles, um, kind of understands them in a way that other doctors might not. Yeah. So, um, so are you are you a psychiatrist? So would you 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 describe yourself? You're you're training. Yeah, Yeah, you know, we call ourselves physiatrists. Um, It sounds a lot like psychiatrists. Yeah. And some people call them physiotherapists. And so I like to call myself a rehab doctor. And so I see musculoskeletal medicine. And I do everything from treating kids with, you know, Botox injections because they're, they have tightness and tone um, to seeing, you know, kids who dif- have aches and sprains, back pain in kids. And obviously this is one of the areas of your expertise, but uh, just tell us just examples. I know because obviously I have spasticity after my brain injury, but what is spasticity? Spasticity. Uh, spasticity is technically called a velocity dependent increase in muscle tone. We have these, it's a lot, it's a mouthful, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, what we, what it means essentially is, is that we all have these built-in stretch receptors in our body. Um, if we straighten out our arm, um, we have local receptors that tell us, Hey, listen, don't overdo it. Don't overstretch your arm because you might injure it. Right. And so these protective mechanisms help us in how we move. So if I straighten my arm out, Um, those stretch receptors send a signal to my brain that tells me what's going on. My brain can override that and say, don't worry, don't tighten up, relax. You're just straightening your arm out. Um, If I move it too quickly, my brain is able to override that local signal. But when you have a brain injury or even a spinal cord injury, you're not able to either generate that signal or send that signal to those local receptors to calm them down and tell them not to fire off and get tight. And so what happens is if you move the arm very slowly, 
you can get a full range. But when you move quickly, those stretch receptors activate and make you tighter, stiffer. And then you're able to kind of loosen the person up slowly by moving them. So that's part of what spasticity entails. So it can, it can lead to uh, increased spasticity, can lead to just over extending and you like, I've done that before. And I've been like, continuing now because it's a hot day, but I'm stretching on my arm. But uh, you can like, kind of almost hurt, but feels, feels kind of strange, I guess, hurt, discomfort when you do your arm too quickly. Now I'm, I'm way, I'm, you know, I'd say looking at my arm, but I'm 18 years past my injury, so it, my right arm's good too. No, you're right. It, what, what can happen is that it depends on which muscle is the one that's tightening. But usually when we're straightening our arm out, our, our triceps in the back of the arm activate to extend that elbow. The biceps has to relax and let us stretch. If, yeah. if we have issues with spasticity, those stretch receptors um, you know, are, letting, are firing off, not letting us straighten the arm out. Our brain says, hey, listen, don't worry about it. But, you know, let it go. Yeah. But if you don't have that signal, then you're going to get tight and stiff. And in some cases, especially really severe brain injury, um, it can actually be painful. The person can complain, uh, complain of painful muscle spasms. Right. And that's how they interpret it as like a spasm and a tightening that, that can be painful. Okay. That, that, makes sense, that makes sense to me, at least for someone who's experienced that. And uh, I also just want to get back to just the kids for a second. The, uh, well, not for just a second, but, you know, for a while. <laughs> um, they had the... Like, do you notice that they're more injured? Not, 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 not young kids, young, young, like below, say, you know, five or whatever. It's a different type, probably a different type of brain, uh, like their frequency of injury and stuff like that. But I mean, but say, high, say, school, school age kids, you find that there's a certain time of year that's more, you see more brain, more concussion, more, more brain injury. Well, certainly there, there is this bimodal distribution of, of times when people have injuries and ages when people have injuries. Yeah. And, and certainly we know that, you know, teenagers tend to have, uh, be a little bit more predisposed to those things. Um, but certainly we, we do look at the summer months when people are out and about more. Um, yeah. When you're talking about seasonal sports, then it yeah. actually coincides with the type of sport, um, oh, yeah. what, part of the, what part of the world you're in. Um, certainly in, in Canada, it would be during hockey season. Yeah. So you yeah. might see an uptick in, in that. Um, for us, it would be, you know, for sports related during football season. Yeah. And you're in, in, in Boston, it's New York, New York City. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously the hockey is similar and this, but the, not similar, but like it's still very, probably more people playing there. But anyway, a lot of people playing football, but also, Winter now, this, is, this will come out on the 14th of December. So in a week, when you're listening to this, in a week, it'll be winter officially and and the holiday season. So would, would, you, would you find more incidents than up range because of people slipping in ice and just, or is it just more general or just general injuries, just the same ever just sort of across the board for injuries? You mean like, um, I think a lot of times what happens is, is that, in, in the warmer weather, people are out more, yeah. um, more so than in the colder weather. Yeah. Um, and in the colder weather, it, it might be more people horsing around, playing around, yeah. uh, might be more sports related versus the summertime when people might be riding a bicycle, being, you know, playing outside, um, just being more active and being out and about. And so 
that's usually going to be the more likely reason why you might have an uptick in the warmer months versus the colder months where people are most, mostly indoors and it might be more sports related. So would you, how would you, do you ever say anything to parents or parents or kids, I guess, a certain age when for over the holiday season or winter season that they should be, look out for, be careful of if there's a uh, just shoveling more or, or just, or just uh, outside the steps and stuff like that. But I mean, I know you can say don't be separate, be careful. But I mean, I would just think that with the ground, it's more icier than you're obviously gonna just mean with falls and but there's no no linkage necessary necessary linkage there between the more ice, the slippery conditions, slippery, more slippery conditions and concussion or brain drain kids. Uh, I don't I don't I couldn't say that I, I see more of that because of it. I actually tend to see it more in the younger kids because they're playing in school. Yeah. Um, they're, they're indoors yeah. and they might be in a more enclosed environment. Yeah. And so as much as I might think, Oh, they're outside and they might oh, be at true. a risk to slip. Yeah. They're indoors and they're roughhousing and playing indoors. And then because they get into a wall. Outside, yeah. Right. Because there's no good outside the indoors and that's when they bang into lockers and trip them to sit on like the, the wax floor or the wash floor or whatever but yeah um and uh i also want to talk with the uh your rings your ringside position so what uh, it says uh in your bio says in your state combative sports what is that what is it so what do you you are a ringside physician what does that what does that entail what does that mean like where do you actually practice your ringside position stuff so uh, i'm a physician member of USA Boxing. That's the, the organization that's responsible for the typical Golden Gloves events that you think of when you think of people um, trying to compete in the national and trying to move their way to the you know, you know, Olympic level. So I'll, I'll cover some boxing in New York City, for example, or, or in the local area. And um, in general, this covers um, kids of all ages, um, you know, um, maybe 10, 11 years old, up until, you know, the adulthood, actually, we get, you know, adults and, and older individuals um, competing. Part of my job is to do a pre-fight assessment, uh, see the fighter, check for any kind of injuries that they may have going into a fight. Someone may, for example, may have a fractured um, bone in their face, yeah. maybe in the hand. Um, observe them during the fight, sitting at ringside, um, and then observing for any signs that the person may have any kind of an impairment um, in their ability to defend themselves. And that could be that the person might actually have a, a concussion um, or uh, may have another muscle injury, maybe even an injured shoulder, um, you know, an injured hand, but certainly intervening um, if necessary before it reaches a point where it's, it's dangerous. And um, the interesting thing about being a ringside physician um, in sports, um, compared to any other sport is that being a ringside physician, um, you're the, the one person or the one type of doctor that can actually prevent an injury from happening. Most of us, when we go to a sideline sports, a hockey game, a football game, an American football game, yeah. you're, you're on the sidelines, right? The person gets hurt and then you see them. Right. Ringside sports is the one time that you can actually intervene before that person can seriously get hurt. And so that's the one thing about this particular type of contact sport that makes it different. I can look at someone and I can see their eyes as they're fighting. 
And I can tell you who's just physically exhausted versus who's not in the fight, who's really not focused. I can even tell you if a fighter is um, fearful just from the way they move in the ring. And part of it comes from my background of having different kinds of training, but certainly you can um, see it in the fighter and try if you're able to, to warn them or let them know, or even intervene if necessary. Well, so I was, I was, was going to ask you, is that just from, like you see, if obviously the last or first last you, is it just boxing or do you do also MMA and martial arts as well? Yes, um, practice it and then also, um, you know, covering those events, kickboxing events, MMA events, um, and so being in grappling events. And so having an understanding of that, uh, of any sport, uh, if you have an understanding of hockey and the intricacies of, of how someone moves about on the ice, um, how someone actually controls a puck, um, that allows you to have a better sense of when someone's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. That makes sense, yeah, totally. Or, yeah. or for example, missing a defensive assignment. You yeah. know that this player is supposed to be at this particular position or supposed to be reacting in a certain way, and you can see they're a little bit off in their reaction time. Um, I see the same thing when I'm seeing a fighter. I'm looking at a fighter and seeing in between rounds, when that fighter is engaged, I look at their eyes and seeing, are they looking at their trainer? Are they looking at their coach? Are they engaged in following and you know strategizing in between rounds? If they're not paying attention, if they're looking at the ground, that's letting me know something's off. Maybe they're hurt. Maybe they might even not want to fight anymore. Maybe they're, they're just tired. But I do look at that because once the ring, once that bell goes and they're back in the ring, you can see someone trying to plan and trying to strategize and moving about the ring in a certain way that lets you know that they're actually still engaged in that, in that match versus someone who doesn't quite seem to be fully engaged. Okay, that's true, because yeah, you were saying, like, the, the, your type, the examples you're talking about were are kind of the missing events assignment or not moving about the ring and not watching what they should be watching if they're engaged in the fight. Um, do you, do you, does that depend more on your experience just in general, or is it more, more, uh, athlete fighter, uh, specific deficits? Is, is it just a general idea that you normally they, this fighter or this athlete will be here, we will be doing this. Whereas if you know, they're an athlete, you say, well, this athlete doesn't normally do that. Does their, are they not advanced enough for their, uh, just that's the way they're, does it matter? personality-wise? It's actually a little both. If it's a, if it's a, what I tend to do is when I do the pre-fight exams, I ask them how many bouts have they had? And, um, you know, if if they're new to the sport or they haven't had many bouts, um, you can tend to, you can expect them to perhaps not be as polished in, in the ring. So you can, you can expect that they might be, we call a little wild in the ring. Like they're just kind of not understanding the nuances of movement and angular movement. You don't just go in a straight line. Um, You attack at angles, 45 degree angles, circling your opponent. Um, That's strategy, that's movement. With a a newer fighter, that may not be the case, but you'll still see them, the expression on their face and how they're trying to move and trying to figure out uh, or guess what their opponent's trying to do. As they get more and more skilled, they'll be better defensively where they can better able to um, protect themselves against any strikes and also how they're approaching or trying to gain some offensive advantage. So it's a little bit of both. You're, you're able to look at them and see, but I often look at their, their face more so than even their body 
because that lets me know, are they engaged? Are they really looking at their opponent versus they're not quite as focused? They seem to be you know, moving away from their opponent, not wanting to engage. We don't call it running away, but certainly moving away and not engaging. So is it mostly, is it mostly in the face, is it mostly the eyes or is it just certain areas of the face are more are kind of tighter or more just more tense? It, it's almost, think of it almost as if um, you're, when you're in a conversation with someone and you're yeah. face to face, you're generally having eye contact, you're engaging. Yeah. Um, when you're in about, what you're doing is you're looking at your opponent and yeah. Depending on the sport, kickboxing, for example, you can kick, you can punch. Um, but certainly when you're when you're looking at the person, you're you're looking about and seeing the person as a whole, trying to see where that attack is coming from, trying to anticipate that. So there's actually it's a mental chess game. And so you really have to be um, sharp when you're doing that and really focused and hyper focused on what's going on in that ring. If I notice that the fighter isn't. Uh, defending themselves intelligently their hands aren't up when they're in a fighting position they right. tend to just duck and dodge and just kind of move away um, that's letting myself know and also the referee know, the, the person in the ring know that they may not be um, defending themselves in a, an intelligent manner or perhaps in a in a manner that's that's you know conducive to a, to a bout so do you have do you ever breath for do you ref any of these matches or have you ever, or do you simply do the, uh, the position ringside position? I, uh, I'm usually at the ringside. Um, there is, there are referees that are in, in the ring that are also trained and, and are aware when a fighter, and usually these are ex fighters. And so they're aware and they can also see, and they can be my eyes and ears in the ring um, being in one particular corner means that I may not see something, but the referee inside might be able to. And, and I tend to be very mobile. I will literally get up and walk around to the other side of the ring or, yeah. or walk around um, to get a better look at the fighter. So to say the second two-part question is uh, if, have you ever, or not have you ever, it's one example, but do you often find that you say to an athlete, you know, you're not, you're not, there's something off here. I don't think you should continue. And then, and, and secondly, if that if they say no, don't they'll say no, no, no. I'm I'm fine. I'll go back in. And is there ultimately it's their choice or whatever? I guess kind of. Um, and then has the has the uh, the ref ever come to you? The trained ref freaking do said, you know, the fighter's not looking too good. He's doing this, and then you'll say, I agree, and then you'll tell the the other athlete, they're like, no, no, that's just as I'm I'm just feeling a bit. That's fine now. Yeah, uh, that's a good point because um, almost in almost all cases, the fighter will say, no, no, I'm good. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have, I, I have stopped bouts um, and, um, and I often will actually um, get information from the referee who will say, can you check out so-and-so in between rounds? Or they'll stop the bout for a moment and have me check on the fighter. Um, and yes, we have, we do sometimes have to stop bouts um, and this is where that nexus between um, seeing the fighter and knowing about the, about what they do and how they do something, whether any, in any sport, um, you know, one that I remember um, very well was a young man who would drop his left hand anytime he entered into an exchange with his opponent and he was doing it in the first round. And we could all, at least those of us who were ringside, could clearly see that he would drop his hand 
and he would catch a hook from his opponent um, because of it. And it happened repeatedly. And um, he would get a standing eight count. And we kept thinking, okay, in between rounds, if he continues to drop that hand, this fight will not go three rounds and we'll probably wind up stopping it. And sure enough, he, whatever they coached him in his corner, I'm not sure if he followed it or not, but that hand kept dropping and he kept getting standing eight counts. And so when they did it again, I actually just stood up and stopped the bout because we had reached that stage where um, he was a young guy, maybe 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very upset and he was yelling yeah. at me, well, this is my career. And I said, yeah, but your yeah. brain is more important. Yeah. And you're 16 years old. You're not, it's not your career yet. No, yeah. his, his coach was angry too. And that's the yeah. thing is that you're going to get, yeah. you're going to get heat from everybody. Yeah, from the, the fighter, the coach. So are you, so are you, are you, are you hired by, you're hired by the commission? Is that the deal? Like you're the, the, the New York state combat work commission or whatever boxing, USA boxing hires you or do or do certain mm-hmm. teams, uh, groups of like, do they hire you? Who hire? Who who pays you for their best? Well, there's pay? there's a group of, of physicians who are members, physician members of USA Boxing, yeah. and when they do have the events, they ask us, "Hey, do you want to cover some of these bouts?" Oh, so okay. for the Golden Gloves event, they will ask us, "Do any of you guys want to compete or, or say be at the competition and be there?" And so we will say, "Yes, we could. We could do this event, that event, if it's close to where we live." And then they'll try to fit us into a place that's closer to where we are. Okay. So you say you've covered more than just you say kickboxing, boxing, some MMA, some mushrooms, maybe. But what to which sport do you, do you think of the, or that you cover at least? And which sports you do cover? Uh, do you find it's most, most say you would stop the fight more often or you would notice that there's more prevalence of concussion symptoms at least? Uh, kickboxing. Kickboxing? Simply because there are more striking points. When you think about the human body, we don't ever think about striking with our elbows or our knees. But those elbows are actually one of the strongest parts of your body. And when uh, fighters are in a clinch, in other words, they're holding each other, um, it's very um, common, especially at the higher levels, to um, drive an elbow upwards into your opponent um, or sideways. And so when you're, when you sometimes miss that because you may be at an, a different angle, but certainly because there are more limbs that can strike, it creates many more opportunities for someone to get injured. And so I actually find it as much as I would think it would be boxing because you're using your hands and you're yeah. punching it, it. It's oftentimes, um, because, um, the, uh, because you can kick and you can, uh, deliver elbows oh, that, yeah. um, the kickboxing. Right. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right. I'll get it. The elbows, yeah, I know. I didn't know you could first see and you could love elbows and sure and this fighting sports and like MMA and those, those uh, summer star sports too. But there's, I've seen maybe not as many competitors or you don't see as many bouts with those athletes. But um, so what I have looked at questions about generally about fighting the, the, the glass jaw, like they know I've noticed the odd time, like, I'm not, I'm not fighters. So. I don't get hit in the face, but then you like, there's a part of my in your jaw that's a bit that isn't isn't there is there a nerve or something that's there that's when you hit there you do get a bit woozy or maybe dizzy is there is that true is there a part of there is there a well, part or a, we do have the facial nerve that exits out here your trigeminal um, comes out here the facial nerve is around here um, so certainly there are, are nerves there that can be injured. Um, I, 
often I would be thinking of the mastoid process here okay. that may be more right. likely to an injury. Yeah. And, and so that, that your might chewing, be where your tongue bone. Yeah. 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 And that might be it. Okay. So that's when people say the glass jaw, it's not necessarily down here where I'm thinking that down at the bottom of your jaw is maybe up near your ear more. Well, I think glass jaw also is kind of a rough, is kind yeah. of a catch-all term because yeah. you may not necessarily have a jaw that's necessarily thinner yeah. or more predisposed. It may just be that for some people, their bony structure may better be able to absorb some of those forces. Um, whether, you know, and, and I know what you mean, you're, you're, you're thinking, hey, there are some guys who can take a punch better than others. Yeah. And, and what I've noticed is in the more experienced fighters, and this just happens just a, a few, you know, last weekend, uh, okay. We had a, uh, an MMA bout. The the very first, the, the moment the fight started, three seconds in, the more experienced boxer uh, or fighter who was a boxer got hit and went right down. Um, but the thing is, is that he had done about 20 or 30 boxing matches. And so he had the wits about him to be able to kind of recover very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that his opponent never had a chance to capitalize on that. And so in the more experienced fighters, they can sometimes hide the injury. They can sometimes mask that injury. And so it's a little tougher with the more experienced fighters because they're, when they get dizzy, they get rocked. They're better able to move about in the ring in a way that makes it harder to tell if they had an injury. And at times I'll have to wait until in between rounds to really get a look at the fighter and see how they're engaged and whether they're engaged in between rounds. And uh, this is maybe more hockey-related, but maybe more anything. I've never actually played hockey myself. But uh, so, have you ever been to uh, been on not ring side, but rink rink side at a hockey game and and seeing the play uh, the, the players like fight obviously there? Did you ever notice that there's a someone obviously has a concussion while they're fighting a fight in the game? No, I haven't. Um, I mean, I've seen hockey, you know, live and it's yeah. for those people who have not seen hockey live, it is so much faster than you expect um, yeah. when you see it on television. Um, so I can imagine um, just, you know, eating a puck, uh, yeah. <laughs> although you have something covering your face. Yeah. But no, I haven't seen that. And I think that um, when you have those fights, sometimes, you know, when when the guys drop gloves, um, I think it also depends on where they strike. Um I think for the most part, a lot of times those guys really aren't landing blows exactly no, yeah, where you'd expect them yeah, to be. Yeah, they're not trained fighters. They're just like, they're just experienced fighters. But they also on skate. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Yeah. So so what's what what uh, you said you uh you participated in either boxing or martial arts. What sport did you, what sports, what combatant sports did you participate in? Well, like when I was in high school, I learned how to am- wrestle in the amateur style. Okay. Um, Which is, how's that different? Uh, you, mean, you mean just say, as opposed to like these, like Hulk Hogan and like, yeah, and exactly. John uh, Cena uh, and them. Yeah. Although I do cover professional wrestling bouts as well, and those can actually be, you know, dangerous in and of themselves. Yeah, like actually, something I had, goes a, wrong. I had a, Rob Rob Van Dam was on my podcast in episode 48, 40, not 48, but 40 something. And he was, he's been, he has the, the documentary about being, being concussed and being injured. And yeah, sorry, don't talk mm-hmm. to you there. No, no, absolutely. And, and I've seen, I've seen, you know, his matches and, and certainly what he does is high risk. And so, yes. um, you know, when you, when you deal with, um, with anybody in any kind of particular um, sport or style, there is always that risk. Um, I, I, that's what I first learned. Then, you know, much later I learned boxing and then Taekwondo and then jujitsu. And so as you kind of move from style to style, you, you notice the commonalities in all these different things. But also it allows you to get a sense of um, just the, the level of impact with any particular style. And so certainly in, in a similar vein, when you look at a sport, like let's say football, um, you understand that certain positions carry higher risk than others. Um, the, the linemen, for example, the, the head impact that they have um, throughout a game is a lot more, um, it, it may not be noticeable to the fan, but certainly if you're watching the amount of collisions that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see that. Right. Because I know because uh, is more grappling to the style than a lot of think even the Taekwondo is less so than say boxing, kickboxing. But isn't it is that is that true? Is that more of grappling? Than it, yes, and that's in, in a sense because you are doing a lot more joint locks, uh, but you still do throws. And so um, usually when you throw and you're working with a partner, you're, um, you know, being considerate of your partner. Yeah. So you may throw them in a certain way that will minimize the impact. Um, and of course you learn how to take a fall, meaning you learn yeah. how to spread out the force when you land. Which but I have uh, <laughs> learned by travel fire. Yeah. Yeah. But it does. Uh, have you taken jujitsu? No, no. But I mean, like falling, I just fall. <laughs> I, just, well, I don't anymore, but I used to like when I, after my injuries, from starting to walk, I felt a lot and uh, just scare you. The physician, my physio, always said to me, "You, you're graceful. You're such a graceful faller." So it's just because 
that and that can save you from many a broken bone and, yeah. and, and you you learn how to fall and so one of the very first things they teach you in any style of anything um, is how to be safe how to land properly so that when you are with a partner um, whatever you're learning um, that you will do it in a safe way and so certainly with jujitsu they teach you how to fall so that if you are thrown you learn how to control yourself whether you're in the air or whether you're landing um, to be as safe as you can be right okay that makes sense and uh, so I guess we're gonna move away from uh the combat sports now but that uh, year too finally because I've been on the phone now for a while but uh, online but um the uh you're an associate you're a professor at the icon school of medicine so what is first of all for those listening people in, in Canada or not New York City who not know what the icon school icon school of medicine is uh, what and it's at my side so what what is it and what do you what do you teach well, Mount Sinai is a, is a health system here in, in this area with them in the New York regional area, yeah. although they, they have, you know, branches outside of the New York City area. Okay. And so the, there's an associated medical school. Oh. It's actually literally across the street from where I am. Okay. And so um, for us, we will have students rotating with us during some of our, um, some of our clinical uh, responsibilities. Sometimes we'll do lectures uh, for the students. Sometimes we'll have them rotating through with us. And so we may even see them helping us with research. For example, with Dr. Petrino at the Abilities Research Center here, right. um, they, students may want to um, engage in, in research here. Um, and certainly even in some of the things we do in the community. Um, we had, I had a medical student uh, maybe about three or four weeks ago um, do a kickboxing event with me. Uh, there were a few of us that went residents in training. And so the students kind of learn what they're able to, you know, some of the elements of a physical exam, uh, pre-fight exam, post-fight exam, um, what to look for, things that, that they might do in the clinical setting. Okay, actually, as soon as you said that, I want to jump back to Combat Sports again. So how do you conduct a pre-fight, post-fight, pre-fight, but during exam, during ringside exam? How do you perform those? So we always go from head to toe. It's easier to remember. So a lot of times, the very first thing you do is you check eye movements. Uh, you check and see if there's any abnormal eye movement uh, when you're checking the, the you know, slow movements, uh, the, the, the pupillary response, for example, yeah. um, to also check. You would also look inside the ears as well. Some fighters, not always, but some fighters may have injuries inside the ear, the eardrum, ruptured eardrum, for example. Yeah. Um, you would check the, I often say to the, to the fighter, okay, now I'm going to check your forehead, cheekbones, jaw bones to see and assess for any fractures, any orbital fractures, any yeah. maxillary or mandibular injuries. Um, then I'm going to check your collarbone. Um, I don't call it clavicle. Nobody knows what that is. Yes. So I mean, check your collarbone um, to check because for certain sports like kickboxing, an axe kick, which comes across and across the body might break that collarbone. And so you check for anything like that. You check the center of the chest for the sternum and then the ribs for any rib fractures or hairline fractures that they may be trying to hide. You check the hands. Some of the, some fighters may have um, broken fingers or metacarpal bones, the ones before the fingers, um, and also fractures along the forearm, um, elbows as well, and then the knees, and then I'll have them, um, you know, kind of like um, squat and walk for me to just test their strength. Yeah. 
Um, and then afterwards, I may do a little bit more abbreviated version, just checking the main areas where they were striking. It depends on the type of combat sport, but certainly something that you want to be able to do. And we kind of herd them in. We, you know, at the beginning of about or, or of an event, we do like, you know, you know, 25, 30, um, you know, different fighters. And so we kind of bring them all one after another and can do their exams. Yeah, right. And so, so did, that's just yeah, a lot of work that a lot of stuff to remember for, for every afterburst every now. But uh, during, say, during a match, something turn about it. So someone comes ringside during a, perhaps during a match, and they look like they're just a regular fight, just a, it's going well, both scoring well or badly, both sides, but nothing egregious. Um, how would you how would you approach an athlete doing an exam on an athlete at the corner? Um, you mean after the bout? Just, sorry, during like between between rounds, between rounds. Oh, between rounds, we really don't check the fighters unless we're called up into the ringside, okay. um, onto the ring apron by the referee. But what I will do sometimes, if I'm concerned about a fighter, is I will circle. I will get up and leave and walk around to where that fighter is, just to get a closer look at the that particular fighter. Okay, so just you just you just check and fish constantly, constantly watching, obviously, and just to see how they're doing. And you do you go? Do you only go up when you're alerted, or do you do you say to 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 a trainer say, "Hey, this guy is not, or this girl, this woman is not not doing not doing this properly and just set normal?" Or is that, do you do you chat with them, or do you or they just trick them to say, "Oh no, that's fine. He she's fine." Well, no, there, there's actually a protocol for that. Um, you know, depending upon the rules of the commission, um, if once the if I as a physician step onto the ring apron to assess that fighter, yeah. that may actually end the bout. Or, and so because they may say, well, the physician's stopping it to check on the fighter. So what I have to do is understand the rules of that particular combat sport. And um, I may request the referee, hey, can I check on so and so and such and such? Um, when they're done and just before the next round starts. And so in those cases, I'll actually assess the fighter very briefly right before they're about to start the next round. In fact, that was actually, I made the mistake once early on of um, being concerned and checking on a fighter um, at, at the end of a round. And one of the referees who was much more experienced with me um, actually said to me, he said, you know, um, just so you know, doc, just, you know, in between you in between rounds that's when they're getting their coaching and so in a close fight you may have cost the fighter his bout because oh. he wasn't getting coaching while i was checking him right. I, I should have instead waited for the for that yeah. to end the 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 in between round time to end and then assessed him um, oh. that wouldn't have penalized him so there is a protocol that you have to follow so that you don't adversely affect the outcome of a bout Okay, well, that's that certainly covers my question for that. But um, I'm jumping back now. I don't know I'm making my listeners confused now, but jump back to the icon school mm -hmm. medicine. Um, so, do you, as a physiatrist, as the director of the rehabilitation unit, even pediatric rehabilitation unit, do you do you also do all the work with, like, do you work with the physiotherapists themselves? Or, um, you know, Jenna. Just like a year, just in June, Jenna Tosto was on air. Jenna Tosto Mancuso was mm -hmm. on air, and uh, and the Bodies Research Center. Did so do you do you, do you do you work with them? Is that what that your unit? Is that your, your director? Is that what your 
you're, you're for like do you work for them with them exactly or do you truck them I, I work i work with them and in fact um you know one of the things that we do is we we have the play safe initiative so we have a concussion clinic here at, at mount sinai and um and we also have a play safe initiative uh, created by dr david petrino and so he yeah. runs the abilities research center and so one of the things that we do is the play safe initiative which is where we partner with local high schools and we'll do pre-fight exams. Um, so we'll do, we'll have a whole herd of uh, kids come in um, before their season starts. Some of the rehab sports medicine fellows will actually do pre-season assessments that we can use and compare if there's a concussion or an injury. So that when I see them in the, in the clinic area, either at the Abilities Research Center or in my clinic, we have a baseline to compare with. And so what they actually do is they'll use like um, an app called Sway. It's a cell phone app. You literally put it on your chest and you you kind of do balance testing. And the cell phone- And I like actually, the Apple, like I know my mom, like the, 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 the Sway thing for, for a car, for like Toyota's, for example. Yeah. Starting, switching lanes, like mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. It can read that movement. And so you get a baseline and then you can compare that with that with balance testing to see if there's a difference. And then the other one that we want to use is something called, is a device called NeuroCheck. It's a, it's a, a head goggles. And what it does is it actually works on um, visual evoked potentials. It's kind of like an EEG, but a portable one. And what it does is it flashes lights in your eyes that are read by your eyes. And the signals are sent to the back of your head where our visual receptors are our cortex is and so what what it does is it reads how we're interpreting those signals or the way the signals are being read and sent to the back of the brain so that it actually gives you a readout um, and comparing it to what a normal response would be you get a baseline before their season starts and then if there's an injury you can actually have them try it out and see is there a difference between what happened um, you know after this injury compared to their earlier baseline assessments and so we, we do everything. So do you, do you think baseline assessments are very important or just somewhat important or just or do, great to have, but not necessarily? I, I, think, I think that in any sport, if you're able to do even the smallest of a baseline, it can help someone like myself when I see the person um, and I don't have a reference or a baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I have a, a, a value that lets me compare something to. Um, obviously, we know that sometimes people will try to, um, you know, get out of or, or uh, give me responses that may not be legitimate um, because they don't want their concussed results to be any different. Right. But but I think it's actually really important because it allows me to get a sense of what this person was like before. Sometimes when I'm seeing a kid in a clinic, I will ask the parent, um, you know. I, you know, is your child typically behaving like this? With children, you will often get some behavioral changes. Um, they don't really know what's going on, especially the young ones. They, they're a little bit more short-tempered, maybe what we call labile, just, you know, kind of like just sometimes yeah. they get moody, you know? And it's hard to tell, especially with a teenager, whether it's a moody teenager versus a kid who's really having a hard time yeah. um, with loud sounds, with, you know, maybe it's a family that's very, verbose or vocal, but now the kid can't handle that because it's just too much information and brain overload. And so knowing those things can help me. And so if I can have that information, you know, before they get their injury, 
it will certainly let me know when they've come back to their baseline or at least they're close to it. Well, I think I, I honestly think I could have you on like all day to ask you guys about this because obviously it's an area which is very important to me and very like fundamental to what I how I am now and what I look at and what I, what I learn and stuff. So, but uh, I just want to ask you about your associate professor. So, is there a specific you said you, you go with, with up to three residents to combat combat sports matches to, to bring side notes and stuff like that, but uh. Ringside assessments, but uh, do you teach? What is your do you teach anything at as professor? What is your area you teach? You know, uh, when you come in as a doctor, they call you an assistant professor, and then you kind of get promoted to an associate professor, and then you yeah. become a full professor. Um, you know, it's kind of this nebulous, kind of hard to define. Oh, okay. Um, title, but I should know that. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think anybody knows that. Not even us no. But I, I'm, I'm a teaching patient of standardized patients at, uh, at their local med school. So I, I you know, and they just kind of they obviously teach their areas of expertise, but they kind of teach everything within their area of expertise, which is what you would do. I'll see. Well, they they kind of look at it from the professor perspective as there are different types of professors. So there is a research professor, someone who may do a lot of investigational work. Um, Maybe they might be doing um, a lot of studies. And then there are actually clinical professors who teach by examining patients, doing clinical work. And that's actually been, um, up until coming here to Mount Sinai was what I was doing, more clinical work. And now I'm kind of moving into doing some more research but certainly um, there's a clinical track where your experience, your ability to teach others how to examine a patient, what are the clinical uh, findings you should look for, doing lectures and presentations, um, teaching people the the fundamentals uh, of what to do. Um, For example, I work teaching injections, for example, for people who have spasticity and tone, injections of the muscles, um, but also other things in teaching about new medications, new medicines for, um, you know, genetic disorders like spinal muscular atrophy or, or Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. So, you know, it's, it's a range of things that we cover as pediatric rehab doctors. So part of it is teaching those things. Well, just, this is uh, yeah, that's exactly, I wanted to give you the last word, but thank you so much. And uh, about just generally, what would you tell kids about it? Also, well, two parts really, First, what would you tell kids slash parents about about concussions slash brain injury, and uh, and what and any new? I guess you said you're moving into research, so anything new that you would any new research you find you think you're doing out that you think is really interesting, such as specificity injections for specificity. Well, certainly, I think uh, um, when it comes to speaking with parents about um, concussion. Um, it's important to let the parents know that a concussion um, can, can occur from any blow to the body, not just the head. And so we always have to look at it as an event in which um, there was an injury to the brain, but it could have happened with the person not even being hit in the head. Um, I think also that it's not just um, you know um, getting hit in the head and, and getting dinged, that it is a form of brain injury and there are treatments that you can use. Some are more conservative than others, but certainly that when you're entering into sport, you wanna be able to play the sport, whatever it is, whether it's um, combat sports or football or hockey, that you want to make sure that you play it in the safest way possible 
um, so that you can get the most out of the sport. Um, and in terms of new things going, you know, moving forward, I think certainly here at Mount Sinai, building a concussion clinic, but also being able to use those new technologies so that we can bring them to the field, to the sideline, to the ringside, to actually be able to test kids so that we can get a sense of what's going on with them and better treat them. Where can, thanks. And where can people follow you? Not you, but you, you are the university, the medicine school of medicine or medicine or the U.S. boxing or the ring, any, any of the other sports you do ringside position for. Um, where can they follow you online or, or find you online to find information, information about that? Um, I think that, that the best would be actually um, reaching out to concussion at mountsinai.org. So who gets those, those emails? Well, that would be the Abilities Research Center. Okay. So that we can act, that way we can actually, um, you know, if we have anyone that, that needs to speak with us or um, wants some information from us or wants to reach out to us, they can certainly reach us that way. I think that's probably the, the way that um, our whole team would be able to um, be involved. Um, this is a concussion treatment management is a team process. And whether it's, you know, the doctors, the therapists, the teachers, the coaches, even the community, it's all kind of a group. And so certainly starting from that and moving forward, I think would be a, a, a good recommendation. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much. That's a, that's an excellent recommendation. And I just want to thank you so much. But first, but just let you know that I was to talk to you for a second after I end this podcast. But mm-hmm. uh but for everyone else, thank you so much for listening, and uh, and thank you, Dr. Kensell, for your amazing advice and your amazing expertise. So uh, thank you all for listening, and I uh, hope you stay in soon. Thank you for having me. The music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound, www.bensound.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.